Hi, guys. Welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today, I've got Nick Matthews with me. Nick is beaming uh, over from the United States, and I'm dead excited to talk to him about his journey. Because like me, he's a, he's a survivor who then turned into a thriver and is now helping others to get their shit together. And for that, I mean, he is he's a superhero in my eyes. Nick Matthews, welcome to my show. Thanks, sir. Appreciate it. <laughs> now, you come from Oregon, from a quaint little town where indeed the Goonies were filmed. Uh, great film, loved it. Um, you were not an extra. I don't think the times were right to coincide with that. But your town, your your place in Oregon is not just known for the Goonies. It is also known for the amount of people uh, who try to escape their reality with heroin, isn't it? How the hell did that happen? How how was how was it to grow up there? Yeah, you know, uh, it, it's really interesting. I think you know we're we're kind of looking at a combination of a lot of things, and it's unfortunately it's really common in so many small rural communities throughout the United States. But what we see is is a combination of a lack of opportunity. It's sort of an environment in which yeah. ambition is drowned. You know, um, the town that I grew up in, for example, you had really three career paths if you were going to stay local and you could go into logging, which is you're cutting down trees for a living. And mm -hmm. that's not super exciting. You can go fishing or you can work in a restaurant. Um, and while there's no shame in any of those trades, if you had any other ambition as a young man growing up in that community, mm -hmm. it's kind of snuffed out. Um, and then you know, you couple that with the fact that it rains about 290 days out of the year, and it's gloomy and depressive. And um, it creates a, a breeding ground for depression, isolation, and, you know, of course, self medication. Wow, 290 days. Oh, that's serious. <laughs> Yeah, it's a lot of rain. <laughs> <laughs> and I know it. I lived in the UK for a few years. And the UK, sort of from October, November, till pretty much March, April, um, is uh, not gloomy. It is just continuous drizzle. Here in New Zealand, where I live now, we have got sometimes rainstorms that really you can't drive literally you, your windscreen wipers do nothing that's serious rain that's exciting that makes you yeah and 20 minutes later or two hours later it's gone in the uk it's drizzle it's drizzle dark and then you go to work in darkness and you come home in darkness and you think Ugh. so i know just a short period of that uh can drag me down and sometimes we forget how external factors can impact on us so no surprise there um and has how did the timber industry in your area actually develop over the time where there were mills being closed where uh, were there how did the the various shortages of money impact on your town well you know it, it, it's interesting because the, that industry, the timber industry, as well as the commercial fishing, always thrived. Uh, what happened was the barrier for entry became more and more difficult. Um, you know, once people kind of secured their position, they weren't leaving. So if you wanted an entry level job at one of these, uh, you know, it was it was very difficult. Um, and in, in some instances, completely impossible to get in in the companies. 
Wow. That speaks for the companies with regards to their retention of staff. Wow. Um, here, unfortunately, in New Zealand, we have got not we have got an up and down. So sometimes mills get closed in in small areas uh, where really they were the main employers. And you can imagine that a more socioeconomic poor area that was relying on one employer, bloody plunges into the depression and, and problems. That's where we see so much gangs here um, and so much drug addiction. P is typically our our uh, main, main uh, oh, terrifying thing. Um, so P is the drug of choice here. But interesting, how did heroin come on board there? Was it always a heroin town or? No, I mean, I think, you know, originally it was... Um, you know, probably like most towns in in America, uh, we kind of fell victim to pharmaceutical opioids and alcohol. Oh, I see. You know, it starts with with alcohol and marijuana, of course. Yeah. Um, and then when pharmaceutical opioids kind of hit the scene, we were a really great candidate for that kind of a uh, a medication because, again, all of the career paths that I just described are all really intense physical and manual labor. Yes, it is. So pain, chronic pain, is a constant. So, so many people would get a prescription to Oxycontin or Percocet or Vicodin. And then when doctors got hip to the fact that it was killing people, they stopped prescribing. Well, heroin comes in because now there's a market um, and it's just basic, basic business at that point. Um, supply and demand. Who are the suppliers? Are there gangs there uh, that are facilitating that distribution of heroin? And is it still heroin, or are we talking nowadays more fentanyl and other other nasty substances? Yeah, un unfortunately, it is fentanyl nowadays. And, you know, while there's not necessarily organized, you know, gangs per se, um, you know, we're near some major cities and some major ports, meaning, you know, you have Portland, Oregon, you have Seattle, Washington. Um, and so it's relatively easy for substances to make their way. And a lot of it comes from outside of the country, right in mm. through the Columbia river. Mm -hmm. Damn. Yeah. So the perfect storm brewing up there. <clears throat> I can see that just very nicely happening. So yeah. how did yeah. you get, what was your, your own journey in that environment? Sure. Um, you know, my journey was one where I was just, constantly and desperately trying to be comfortable in my own skin. Right. Um, since I was a little kid, I remember being uncomfortable. You know, my, my father's, um, he's a, a, a crystal meth addict, and I haven't seen him since I was 11 years old, I suppose, was the last time I saw him. Um, and so my entire, my entire life growing up, I watched people struggle, and then I watched people learn how to escape, whether it was my grandparents with whiskey or my father with marijuana, my mom is really the only one that kind of took life uh, in stride and actually learned how to walk through it. Um, I was always taught that, that you can take a pill or a substance to escape. Um, so as soon as I was able to, I started, you know, to explore that, you know, I started smoking marijuana when I was 12 years old. Um, and I remember so clearly the first time I ever got stoned. Um, I remember finally feeling content as if I didn't need anything. Um, and uh, I remember just thinking, this is where I want to be. So I chased it. I chased it all the way, you know, through the whole gambit of substances. When marijuana stopped working, I moved to alcohol. And then when I realized alcohol wasn't, I couldn't go to school and be drunk. So I started to use things that were a little more subtle. And I would take, 
you know, Adderall and, and opiate pain medications. And eventually you kind of hit a threshold where all of these things stop working. You build a tolerance. You don't get the same effect that you did um, until you, you, uh, you know, you graduate. You graduate to more powerful substances. And by the, by the time I was probably 17 years old, I was uh, uh, an intravenous abuser of heroin and crystal meth daily, all day, every day. Um, I was an IV user um, until I got I got sober when I was uh, when I was twenty. That's quite a career, man. Um, most importantly, that you actually survived three years of shooting up without major hiccups. There, um, when was well, that? What was there it? were some? Oh, there was some. <laughs> okay, <laughs> good point. Good point. Which time frame was that? Um, you mean in, in what years? Year? Yeah. Oh, sure. So this must have been, I guess it would have been 2009 to 2013. Yeah. I got sober okay. in 2013. Yeah. So uh, that's really when it was when it was bad for me. And I did experience, you know, I contracted hepatitis C, right. did a lot of damage to my liver, yeah. um, overdosed a few different times, uh, significant overdoses. And I was I was 127 pounds at six feet tall when the day I got sober. Um, so I was I mm. sort of lived to die. Uh, you know, drug addict at that point in my life. I call it suicide in installments. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I like that. It's it, very true. Very, that's intriguing. Now, what I was referring to is that was still the time when you actually bought heroin and you probably got heroin um, that was cut down in various strengths, which leads then to the, to the, uh, accidental overdoses. Um, you think you take something and in reality, it's far more. Whilst mm -hmm. then in 2013-14, around about that time, fentanyl came onto the market and the various carfentanyl and other uh, 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 new uh, psychoactive substances, novel psychoactive substances. Um, and then suddenly the, the game changed. And that's the reason you had 100,000 uh, deaths last year alone of, uh, in the opiate uh, epidemic. So things got far more ratcheted up, and uh, that's why we see so many deaths now. Because you don't, you think you take one thing, and what you take is completely mixed and matched at various levels, and is an absolute uh, potent killer. And so many people paid a price. So you were, in a sense, lucky that you were not yet in that next evolution of your opiate uh, epidemic. Um, because it's far more likely that such a drug career over three years wipes you out. Um, mm -hmm. Fuck, man. But uh, Yeah, we actually talk about that. I've had a, a conversation. Um, you know, I've got a couple sponsees. I work 12-step recovery programs, and so I've got a couple sponsees in the program. And we've discussed how, you know, I've, I've kind of realized how grateful I am because of the way that I used heroin. Um, I... I can earnestly say and believe that I wouldn't have made it today with some of the more powerful. I mean, there's instances of people overdosing uh, from smoke inhalation or just being around mm. some of this, uh, you know, new fentanyl product and mm. stuff. And so um, I think by the skin of my teeth, I just I just made it out of there. But still, I mean, this is not a pissing contest for crying out loud. Um, and it is. But it, it's lovely how you described it, the, our need to to get more and because our brain gets used to it very quickly so there we are that that joint that was initially making you feel so good after three months six months that did nothing to you 
and therefore you had to to you know more and more heart attacks and heart attacks so when in the 80s um the dare program and, and these kind of these uh, drug programs who said mariana's the gateway truck to heroin uh, for some people it actually is because it's it's not <laughs> it's not the drug it's that we actually understand oh finally I can be myself. You cut out your ego, the frontal lobe, the anxiety, all that shit. And then suddenly you come down to, that feels good. That's the first time I feel good. And for me, my alcohol came with a sound effect. <sighs> that was my sound really... effect. The mm -hmm. release, the tension coming down. Did, what did the opiate give you? What happened when you took heroin? You know, honestly, something very similar. Uh, you know, I remember feeling such a tremendous sense of relief that I had finally taken something that worked. Oh. You know, there's a there's a huge discrepancy in price of synthetic opioids versus street heroin. Um, and once you sort of make that jump, I mean, I was at the point where I was probably spending two to two hundred fifty dollars a day on synthetic opioids, and uh, I could never you know, chase, I was chasing the dragon. That's why they say that, you know, I was, I was trying to obtain that same feeling of comfort. Hmm. And I remember the first time I spent $20 on heroin, um, and was set for the entire day. I remember, <laughs> yeah, I did my hit and was, Oh, hello. Uh -huh. Um, and the, the, the relief, which, you know, in hindsight is so alarming. I had just done heroin for the first time and there was no anxiety, no fear, no remorse, no guilt, no regret, only, serenity as as well as i could understand that feeling at that time um now in hindsight i recognize that that's uh it wasn't a real feeling it was a completely chemically induced feeling um but it was it was the closest thing to peace that i had ever experienced and so it was uh, very similar to as you described but finally it worked and um i'm gonna be okay i felt safe i felt secure mm. it's terrible it's a it's 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 such a terrifying thing to to uh to think about to reminisce about it's uh it's so yet, alarming yet it is so this, these drugs are so powerful because they fulfill the need here you were in your life you were searching you were not finding yourself you were you were lost there was pain and trauma and all that shit gnawing away on you and then a drug comes along and finally gives you the peace at that moment, your brain learns very rapidly, wow, I need oxygen, I need water, I need food, I need heroin. Um, it comes at that level immediately. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with alcohol. So there's no longer a conscious, I might have a nice drink, I might shoot up. No, 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 it's a, I need it. And that's, that's what people forget, okay? Mm -hmm. We are using drugs to escape our realities and escape our pain. And I think, that is the key issue. We need to work on the pain that is around us and more importantly in us. We need to work on those kind of things that that are gnawing away on us. The problem is until we actually hit rock bottom, most of us don't do the work to actually thrive and to actually explore why the hell am I getting triggered by that? Why does a certain topic completely lead to the Third World War in three sentences between my wife and me? What's actually going on? We don't do that work unless you have got a strong, uh, a strong interest in, in psychology or so. 
good on you. That's maybe a, a lifesaver before you end up in trouble. But hell no, I had to... Now, for me, it was vodka and wine in industrial amounts um, uh, until I came to a point where I could go no further. Um, bottom yeah. floor. <laughs> no more yeah. lower. Uh, yeah, and... the over. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. <laughs> and then suddenly I ended up in treatment and it was the most beautiful, beautiful transformation. Um, we say, I mean, like you, I went through a 12 step program. And the, from the first day onwards, they said the only thing that changes in recovery is everything. And I initially, I didn't know what they mean. And nowadays, I live such a different life. And I'm on a constant search of, of self improvement. And I know you are the same. You're, you're on this continuous journey of learning more about yourself. So that's amazing. So, when was the point of what happened that you finally were able to no longer shoot up? Did you, what, what triggered you to finally say, okay, I'm no longer in control. It can't continue like that. Right. Well, uh, which time? Uh, because I swore off heroin <laughs> probably a hundred times before I actually put it down. <laughs> you know, that's always the interesting thing. I've had so many moments where I felt emotionally bankrupt. I felt like I had nothing, you know, I, that's the thing about, you know, what be it active alcoholism or, or substance abuse addiction, whatever it is, we always know we're acutely aware that what we're doing is not healthy. That's not good for us. It's not the correct way to live. I think the problem comes in when it actually involves the change. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, I think at the end, there was nothing that I could hide from, you know, I tried to get sober prior. Um, and they call it sort of, you know, you, a belly full of booze and a head full of AA, where I had relapsed, but I was now acutely aware of my character defects. And I was aware of, you know, I had all of the the education about myself. And Excellent. now I, I really I had been stripped of all excuses. Um, and then when I finally got sober, it was, um, you know, uh, I had a, a girlfriend who we were using together at the time. And, you know, we, we thought that she was pregnant. And I had this moment where I realized if I don't stop, I'm going to be a father just like my dad was. And that was all it took. I was on I was on a plane to treatment later that night, because I recognized when I'm hurting myself, that's okay. But when you do it to somebody else, that's um, that wasn't okay with me because I'd been a victim of that my entire life of seeing that growing up, being around it. Mm -hmm. um, and all of a sudden, when when the stakes got bigger than just me, um, I was willing to do whatever it took. Wow. Wow. Beautiful. Wow. What can I say? Being a dad, um, I could not do that. I continued this affair with alcohol for far too long. And I missed the childhood of my children. I was mm -hmm. certainly not there. And that in its own right is a trauma for me. And something that I can never redeem, never, never, um, you know, there's nothing I can do about that because I chose to work so hard and I chose to drink so hard. Um, not that that made me a bad dad. I was, I never hit my children or anything like that, but I was not there for them. And 
you made that call early. So therefore, you don't continue that cycle of intergenerational, you know, destiny, so to speak. Wow. Therefore, therefore, it just wiped me out because um, I'm, that's the thing I'm still struggling with. And there's no, no amount of amends I can do. Uh, what is done is done. Um, I'm really, really, really pleased for you that you've got this opportunity. Actually, was your girlfriend pregnant? And are you still together? Or have no, it was not. So you're not a dad no. yet? No, I, I'm not a father yet. Um, okay. You know, in, in hindsight... He, It came to light. I mean, she was in active addiction as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was lies and manipulation and a very kind of Sid and Nancy sort of toxic heroin relationship. Um, and I used to have this massive resentment toward her for making me believe that as long as I did. But now it's the greatest gift she could have ever given me. <laughs> it's such an interesting thing to think about because it was the catalyst for me to really make a change and to escape the situation that I was in. Um, so, you know, Excellent. there's always a silver lining to that kind of stuff. Well, exactly, exactly. But we yeah. don't see it until we are well into our recovery. Um, right. how, how was anger and resentment for you? Uh, was that, uh, at, um, or what was your dominant um, kind of core belief, shall I say, the negative emotions? I was angry as hell, resentful as hell. That was me in a, in, to a T. What about you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, anger played a big part, um, always based out of ego. Um, and what I've realized now is, and it's still something I struggle with. It's still such a part of, of who I am fundamentally um, that I'm consistently trying to weed out and work through and be conscious of. Because I think some of these character defects that I carry, I have to coexist. I can't get rid of ego entirely. Mm. I can learn how to coexist with it. And I can learn to recognize that ego doesn't get to make decisions for me. Feelings don't get to make choices on my behalf. They're just feelings. Um, you know, I think for I me, like one it. of the one of the biggest things that I struggled with was, was a victim mentality. Mm. And it would manifest in anger. But it was always, I'm the center of the universe. And how dare you? How could you? You're out to get me. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Um, and it would manifest through the anger and lashing out and attacking people that were close to me. Um, but it's, you know, such a victim. Poor me, boo-hoo-hoo. Absolutely. Um, nonsense. It's just nonsense. It is nonsense. But when I lived in it for years, and in all fairness, there are many <laughs> assholes out there. And I was bullied. And uh, there were, there were a bullied also in the workplace later. And, and uh, so... It's not just all in us. There are circumstances around us that are not nice. And sometimes they're extremely toxic um, circumstances. So it is, I think it's important to, to realize, hang on, there is a nasty world out there. Um, yet I was complete slave to my emotions. I was, I was like Pavlov's dog. Something negative happens and, oh, I'm angry. I show you what I think about you by drinking two bottles of vodka. Ha ha, that will show you. And you think, right, really? Right. What? So when right. I realized that, God, that was hard for me. That was actually really, really hard for me because I had identified myself with that, that toxic anger. Um, that was me. And I, it was my right to be angry. That kind of bullshit. Um, right. 
What was the catalyst? How did you change out of that? Or what was the insight? Well, right. That's what I'm saying. I mean, you know, the, the, I think the reality is, is that I'm consistently working against it. Right. Uh, some of that is learned behavior. Some of it is, is natural. As you said, there are assholes in the world. There are, that does happen. There are toxic work environments. There are times in which I am victimized. People will attack me. People will go after me. The difference is today is that I recognize that those feelings don't actually have any power. They're just feelings. And if I can't continue to use them as an excuse for behavior, well, then I'm okay. It's when I when I make a decision based on emotion and then I act on it, and then I will justify that behavior because of the emotion. Well, I did this because I was mad. Okay. I, I don't understand why that makes it okay that I attacked somebody or that I lashed out, that I operated out of anger. So that's really where I think the majority of my self-awareness comes today is honoring these emotions that I have. When I get angry, I recognize it's okay to be angry. What's not okay is to try and make you angry too, because now we're both angry. And then I, I will, again, I'll, I'll, I'll mental jujitsu my way into justifying any behavior because I felt like it. That's, Ooh. that's where I have to draw the line today. And that's where my recovery is built on. Ooh, nicely put. I have to say, nicely put. I, I was, yeah, like you, I'm struggling with that. Not struggling, see. For there are times when I see anger arising and I can laugh about it. Um, that happened to me yesterday and I was that proud of myself. There are other times when the continuous onslaught of shit happens over a period of days and weeks and I ended up in debt not, not even a month ago. And I, the old guy, came back out and lashed out. Um, and I destroyed the relationship uh, due to that. And uh, I still feel very upset about it. Um, about me falling prey to my own wave of emotions. And normally, I, I said so many times on this show, I see emotions as a message. Uh, they are messengers from, from my body to tell me, hey, man, um, are you sure that you're right? Or are you sure that you actually have hydrated? Or are you, are you actually dehydrated? Are you hungry? Are you hungry, mm -hmm. angry, lonely, tired, the halt uh, in, in, in that? And so I'm taking those things off and suddenly I realize, okay, fine. Okay, I, I admit um, I've, I did not look after myself. Um, in that particular instance, uh, nope, it was just all coming together, and I I showed that I'm a human being, um, and the old guy came back out. Mm -hmm. It is what it is, um, but nowadays right. I accept that too. I accept that I'm not that perfect a being. I try to be perfect in my job, or at least not kill people. You know, it's just that's you know I'm an anesthetist, so that that typically is much appreciated. Um, so yeah, and <laughs> luckily, luckily we have got the systems in place that even that catch me uh, when I'm on a uh, maybe not my best day, um, because we all are, all are humans, so it's silly. So therefore, in our workplace, we have made sure that there are checklists and and things like that to prevent us um, uh, falling prey to humanity, to our own humanity. So that's cool. Uh, but in my in my private life, yeah, okay, that is, I admit, that is a lifelong journey. And I love it how you have put that. Um, it's a constant struggle because we can't just cut them out, those kind of character defects. Um, so 
I, I love it how you say it. We have to live with them, learn, learn. Uh, it's like family, isn't it? There's you can't get rid of some some parts of your family. So even if Uncle Joe yeah. is pissing you off left, right, and centre, well, there are certain parts of you that you can't get rid of either. Um, so right. yeah, you go. It's sort of um, you know I like to think of it as kind of the ultimate embodiment of the phrase "know thine enemy." Yeah. You know, when oh, that enemy nice. is yourself in your own character. Nice. Um, pay attention to it. You know, and I think that's the difference between recovery and. Um, you know, active addiction, honestly, is a willingness to learn, a willingness to walk through these defects, not expect perfection, a willingness to accept responsibility, to apologize, to make a change and continue to move forward. Um, as you described yesterday, you had a bout of anger. I had a bout of anger last week um, with somebody very close to me, and a lot of damage was done. And within an hour and a half, I was back on the phone, apologizing earnestly, and not just for them, I was apologizing for myself because I owe it to myself to not live with that. My side of the street has to get clean, mm. you know? Oh, so it true. Oh, well done, man. Well done. Oh, that is, but uh, that is us being human. We will make mistakes and it is how we get back up that defines us. And some uh, some of the mistakes, they, they have got consequences and you have to live with that. And that's integrity um, to, to, to actually, well, no, it's the it's the principle of extreme ownership, and I like that. Jocko Willink uh, is a U.S. Navy SEAL who wrote the book about extreme ownership, and I sort of left the, the book and the concept. And he basically he says that uh, that I'm responsible for the things that are happening around me. So if someone in 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 rank lower than me um, fucks up then it's my responsibility because I need to ask myself, have I given this person the right support, the right equipment, the right skills to to perform his task? If someone right. buff me fucks up, I have to give, to ask myself, well, did I give this person the right information and the right support to actually make the informed decision? So I like that concept, not of beating yourself up because you, oh, it's all my fault. No. No, but actually thinking, where did you contribute to the whole mess here? Don't just blame others. That's easy. But what is your your thing? Because only when you do that, you can actually start exploring. And I think that is the that was the biggest breakthrough for me to actually think, okay, where did you fit in all that? And for you guys out there, if you're actually new to the program or don't really know um, the 12-step program, um, it is really a systematic approach how you go through things. And the first three steps are really that you actually realize, shit, I can't do it alone and enough is enough and I need help. And you actually believe that there is help out there. That's the first three steps. Step four, that is the, the really big one and the challenging one for us because that's where you actually go into... Um, the deep inventory that you actually, just as much as you do, uh, you go into your garage sometimes and you think, okay, God, I have no idea what's in that corner. Let's actually have a look. Um, or maybe hopefully you do the same with a budget and, and think, okay, what were my outgoings actually? Stuff like mm -hmm. that. You actually look in details into your life and... Mm, for example, we do these tables. Um, so uh, tables, okay, the, the resentment or anger. So Joe um, did that, 
that's how it made me feel. No surprise that I'm angry. Boom. And then you list things again. That's good. And then a good mentor, after a few days, brings you back to that table and puts the next column onto it. So now that we've explained that Joe is an asshole because he did that and that's how you felt, what was your role in all that? <laughs> and suddenly you think, uh, 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 mm, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. So that's suddenly where things come in. So in recovery, uh, it's an amazing thing because you actually uh, get a mirror held in front of your face by uh, people who have been there, done that. Uh, I don't know, in your uh, recovery center, we might as well give it away. This young man is in Stillwater, uh, at a Stillwater recovery. Um, what's the full name of it? Did I, I don't want to butcher uh, it. It's, <clears throat> no, it's, it's, you were very close. It's Stillwater Behavioral Health. Thank you. Um, mm -hmm. So in, uh, in your setting, um, certainly in my setting that we have that I went to, every single person, bar one or two of the doctors, had all been addicts. Uh, was is that a similar similar setup in you? Yeah, I think you know one the the work environment kind of calls for that. But at the end of the day, I know when I got sober, the only people that I really wanted to listen to were people that knew what I had been through, the people that had what I had. So yeah, there is a there's a a, a healthy amount of people that work for us that are are in recovery. Absolutely, which is beautiful because you can't bullshit a bullshitter. And I loved that. I loved that. And it was quite an eye opener because the, 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 everyone there, my, my mentor became my mentor, the, the, the guy of the, the, sorry, Guy Smith, the owner of the whole thing. Um, he was a heavy duty alcoholic. Uh, and he got his shit together. His sons had the same. We're also working there. My caseworker, she was an addict. The nurses, the yoga teacher who made us do pretzels. She was turning drunk up to clients and stuff like that. Once you realize that and you see them now and they actually got their shit together, you think, huh, maybe there's hope because they were modeling it. So they didn't need to say anything. The moment I realized who they were, wow, that is, I stand in awe. Because, I mean, I strongly, strongly believe, regardless of what you have ever achieved in your life, if you got yourself into recovery, that is your biggest achievement. That is you being, being my hero. Okay, this is honestly... Uh, whatever you, other, it doesn't matter if you have got a Nobel Prize in something or if you've got, uh, if you're the strongest man, I don't care. This is secondary. This, this falls to the wayside compared with you tackling your own demons deep inside and seeing why you escaped the reality. So uh, I guess, and that's the key message for you guys out there. I mean, here, Nick and me, we got our shit together. Um, it wasn't pretty, and there were some not so nice things in our background. Um, a lot of trauma in our background. So, mm. God. But at some stage, it's so beautiful for me to say that I'm no longer the victim. I'm not even the survivor anymore. Yes, yes, I'm a survivor. Yes. Uh, but my trauma doesn't define me. It is. It was what it was in the past. Yes, I was bullied. Yes, I was a uh, victim of gang violence. Yes, I was a uh, neglected child myself. Okay, yes, yes, yes. But that was then. 
And I think I've come to terms with it, and it's time to live now. It's time to, to, to go out there and live your life of passion. And you can't yeah. do that when you're constantly going back in your mind and, and thinking about all the wrong things. That's, that's, that's why we do recovery. That's why we do the work. That's why we actually spend days, weeks, months in teasing the trauma apart. And that's what Nick does. So, Nick, tell us a bit about the, the work that you do yourself there or that, that Stillwater does. Um, is yeah. it an inpatient residential um, program? Yeah, so uh, Detox Residential, we have multiple locations. There's, uh, you know, the idea when I when I kind of set this company up and was designing it was I, I wanted it to be open to help anybody, regardless of age, gender, socioeconomic status, how you identify, et cetera. You know, I think we live in a society where there's so much difference. We put so much emphasis and focus on the difference. But at the end of the day, I'm a firm believer, just as you are. If you can get into recovery, that's your biggest your biggest accomplishment. And more importantly, if you have what I have, then you are my brother. We don't have to speak the same language. We don't have to. All, all of that sort of tribal instinct goes completely out the window and any differences are now kaput. You have what I have. We're in this together. Um, and you and I speak the same language and there's this camaraderie. There's this cement that binds us. You know, we're trudging buddies in some respect. Um sure. So Stillwater was always designed with weeding out exclusivity um, through different locations, having each location have a, uh, a specialty focus that if you call and, you know, if, if um, you know, you're struggling with, with mental health primary, maybe you're bipolar one. And so you're using substances to medicate that. Well, we have a program for you. And, and if you are, if you have what I have, you're an IV heroin addict and you don't know why you use in the first place. You don't even know what you're trying to escape from. Well, we can help you there. Um, yeah. Even so far as having a nonprofit component and a, a Medi-Cal, which is our sort of state funded Medicare facility to help uh, house homeless population that struggle with addiction, um, which is kind of thankless, tireless work. But we, we dive into that as well. You know, at the end of the day. Um, this company is just built on care, compassion, and concern and um, wanting to help human beings. It's, it's um, I think, probably a lot more simple than, than a lot of other places. We just want to help people. That's it. Absolutely. Um, fantastic. Yet the lights need to stay on and people need to be fed and you want to have some, some money for future children um, as well. Um, so how much does, let's say, four weeks as an inpatient, uh, including the initial detox, etc., so four weeks, how much does that set back uh, a, a parent who wants to put their young man through something like that? Sure. Well, I think the, the bright side of that question is that we do accept the majority of, of private health insurance. We are contracted with a lot of insurance carriers to try and make things easier on people. Mm. Um, I'm always consistently trying to bridge that gap. I know that, you know, when I got sober, I had nothing, I, you know, half a pack of smokes and a duffel bag full of dirty clothes. Um, so, you know, we wanted to to make this accessible to as many people as possible. But unfortunately, here in the United States, you know, it, it is difficult. Um, you know, I will say, you know, if if you don't have insurance and you're going to pay privately, it can be depending on what location you want to go to and what kind of work you want to work on. I mean, it could be anywhere between fifty to sixty thousand dollars out of pocket. Mm. Um, which that's is, US you know, dollars. Where, that's US that's dollars. US dollars. And that's that that is for um, that is for 28 days, so four weeks as an inpatient. Do I understand that right? 
Yeah, that, I mean, yeah. that's correct. It's an yeah. average length of stay. You know, we try not to put a specific day count on it. Some people, you know, aren't ready until 35, 40 days. Some people after Absolutely. three weeks have kind of learned everything Absolutely. that they can. Yeah. And we do and operate on a sliding scale financially just to work nice. with people as much Absolutely. as humanly possible. Absolutely. No, no, and that's that's good, but we need to talk about that too. Because one of the the important bits is that we are quite happy when we're in active addiction. My God, I mean, how much did I spend on alcohol? And then on shitty takeaways or on on other kind of things that alcohol they were alcohol related or due to the alcohol. This must have been easy. I did the maths. The alcohol alone was fifteen thousand, twenty thousand a year. Um, mm -hmm. So that's just the alcohol. So sometimes when you think, "Oh God, the treatment program! Wow, how much are they crazy?" Um, no, actually, that's about you. You're using or drinking for what shall I say, uh, a year, year and a half. So, and in all fairness of all the investments I've done in my life, those 27,000 that I paid for those four weeks inpatient rehab was the best investment I've ever, ever, ever done. No two ways around it. And right. unfortunately, right. if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. Um, that is that needs to be said as well, especially in in the addiction field. Um, yeah. I was I was blessed uh, where I was. I know uh, one of of my in co inmates. Uh, the same intake on the same <laughs> Friday. She had been to a number of other rehabs beforehand. A raging alcoholic, the woman, and she spent nine months in on a farm somewhere in New Zealand. I will not disclose locations here. Nine months. And their rehab was, I think on a Saturday, someone came in for two hours and talked to them. And then otherwise, it's go out there, whip, come on, pick me the peppers, pick me the cucumbers. So it was basically slave labor um, and uh, forced absten abstinence. <laughs> it was, guess what? Once she was released after nine months, she went straight to the next pub. Down it goes, <laughs> got pissed. Surprise, surprise. And that's what's called rehab. That's an official rehab facility. So that's what I'm saying. Come on, guys. Okay. There it is. You, you pay for what you get. And um, so therefore, there is a price for that. But I want to, to bring it home to you again. How much money have we wasted? How many? What's the loss of, of, loss of finances due to your addiction? So the, the, active, the active addiction. But what is also the the loss of the lack of creativity, the loss of your productivity. So it's not just the, the 15, let's call it conservatively, 15,000 alcohol bill. I would say there would have been so many business opportunities, lists that I could have anesthetized for that I didn't because I was drunk or so. Um, therefore, people didn't really want me as an anesthetist because maybe I would be not the best person on a Monday. Those kind of things, you know. Okay, let's be clear right, right, right. about that. Um, right. So, double that at least. So that's thirty thousand, I would say, and that's conservative yeah. as hell. So, right. It all costs money, guys. So, how about you invest in something that might actually a keep you alive, b not just change you i mean it's changes is is the wrong word it completely transformed me it completely gave me my life back so oh man i'm 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 actually honored that you're on my show 
because you're a man who has put your, his money where his mouth is. Um, out of interest, who paid initially for your for your first rehab? How did the money side come about then? Oh, for me to for me to go to rehab, you mean? Yeah, yeah. How did that well, go about? You know, it, it, it's interesting. Um, yeah, I I'm so unbelievably fortunate because uh, you know my mother had a really great health insurance plan through her work. That was the only difference between me and other people who didn't have that same opportunity. And it's, it kind of shines a light on the nightmarish state of healthcare in the United States, but that's another conversation to have. However, that was the reality is that I had um, an insurance card that was able to, to send me through treatment. Um, And I have friends who have long since passed away who didn't. Um, It's the only difference. No, so true. So, so, so true. And I don't have an answer, but I, I want to say to anyone out there who's still sort of functioning, who is still sort of making money, um, when I was at at my lowest, I had a good income, but as much as I brought in was going out and more. And therefore, we were actually in debt left, right and center, also due to some external circumstances where I paid for members of my family and stuff like that. Bottom line is, we were pretty skinned, we were pretty tight. And we didn't have the 27,000. So my wife, absolutely, uh, she explained the thing to our bank. We luckily had a bank manager who actually said, okay, fine, this, here's a bridging loan. There you go, take the money. Um, and it was, yeah, it is an investment. But guys, try everything to do that. and And don't give up until you have found a way of of tapping into that if you can't do the detox um in as an inpatient think about your family physician think about your the person who normally knows you well your gp we call them in other parts of the world um make contact with them they can start helping you reducing your alcohol or reducing the amount of drugs that you're taking helping you to come into a detox getting you getting you through that first hard week or two depending on what your poison is for some of you that might actually work and it doesn't cost you this much and you can start a journey so only right. only because you can't right now fork out the money doesn't mean to say that's it hey, I'm done and I might as well keep using bullshit I call bullshit right okay yeah so no find I a agree. way exactly I agree do you, so yeah. your outpatient program, um, do you have people who can't afford the, the um, inpatient treatment and um, who maybe work together with their family physician and get the input from you? Is there a model like that as well? Yeah, so we're actually in the process of rolling out two brand new programs uh, designed specifically for this population that just doesn't have the financial means or resources or mm-hmm. um you know, it just isn't capable. Sometimes we have instances where, you know, so-and-so, maybe they live in the Midwest and they take care of their sick mother and their mother has cancer and they really can't go away for a month. There, sure. there are, you know, people that need them around. So we're working on currently designing a virtual um, outpatient program, which is basically in effect, it's a, it's a virtual recovery clubhouse and a recovery community in which you can get individual therapy, psychiatry, you can attend groups that provides a plethora of resources all across the country, all across the world mm. for people seeking recovery. Um, 
and they can log in at certain times in the day and and join into this clubhouse and do that work there. And that's called Stillwater Digital. That's our new our new track that's currently in development. Um, and then in addition to that, I also uh, just recently rolled out a new scholarship program. Um, you know, what we like to do is try and give back to the community as much as possible. Um, and so I, I uh, have just finished designing, um, you know, an application process, basically, where somebody from anywhere in the world can go into our website and apply for a full detox residential inpatient scholarship program. And basically, the application is, who are you? What are you struggling with? But more importantly, what are you going to do with this opportunity? Um, and then myself, as well as my medical director and clinical director, will review the applications and decide once every 90 days who's getting a full scholarship into treatment. As far as I know, nobody has ever done anything like this. So I, I had a lot of red tape, which was surprising. Um, I didn't anticipate so much red tape to give away free service. However, uh, <laughs> there was there was a lot of red tape, um, but we finally you know, trudged through it. And it was something I was, I was um, very serious about providing. And so that's, that should be actually rolling out in the next 10 days or so that application will go live on our website. Cool. Hey, uh, uh, well, we might as well right now. Come on guys. Tell, uh, sorry, rah, stop rewrite. <laughs> when my mind is going too fast. Sorry guys. So, uh, Nick, tell me, first of all, what is your website? What is, where can people find you? Oh, sure. Uh, the, the website is stillwatertreatment.com. Easy. And guys, look down there into the description of the YouTube video and the podcast. Um, it is all down there and how you can get hold of Nick and his team. So now that's wonderful. So you are constantly, constantly moving forward, which is an amazing thing. And that is that is that is you as a thriver uh, in a nutshell. We are, we are coming to a point in our recovery where we actually want to give back, where you actually, where it's time that, that you share your story, you share your struggles because mm -hmm. you, you can suddenly make them have a meaning. You can suddenly be, be outspoken and you're no longer afraid of it. After all, addiction right. is a, is a, is a disease of hiding and here we are, once you come into recovery, you become the opposite. You're actually showing integrity, authenticity, and you thrive by sharing your story, sharing your insights, and showing others that the past does not equal the future. And that is so right. powerful. That is such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it is, I see it again and again. Um, around me and it is really it's a brotherhood and sisterhood of 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 people if you figure out that someone is in in recovery from addiction automatically this we don't have a secret handshake maybe we should have one right? <laughs> we should have one. <laughs> exactly <laughs> and, yeah, that's right that's right <laughs> and it's just it is there uh so yeah. it's beautiful yeah so guys it is goosebumps actually that's good <laughs> that's good i like the idea uh the not the secret handshake the brotherhood it's just such a beautiful beautiful thing so guys please yeah. come on board yes okay you have you have seen the darkness out there guys i know that's the reason that you're listening to this to this podcast and watching this youtube video this is good i'm pleased for you that you have seen the darkness because the sheer fact that you're here now is means you're taking action. 
you have taken action to listen to this podcast, to expand your horizon. You might be a loved one of someone who is in active addiction, or you might be in addiction yourself. Brilliant. Brilliant. I want you to feel that pain because that pain makes makes you sit so outside of your comfort zone that you are ready to take action. And now it's just a matter of you've 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 pulled your bow back your arrow is ready to be released you just need to figure out which direction you want to aim and where you want to go because you're ready that is the most beautiful situation where you are come on you if to desperation isn't it it's the right amount of enough is enough if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired this is such a beautiful painful state i know it it sounds crap what i'm saying but it is only those people who have been there know that when the pain is so bad that you even your all your escapism does no longer work and you're sick of the escapism that's when you finally are ready to admit that you're in trouble and to accept that alone you can't do it mm. and that there is a greater something out there and that there are people out there who can model how you get your shit together. So, guys, what have you got to lose? I can't hear you. Say that again. No, no, no I can't hear you still. There is no fucking thing that is possibly standing in your way. Okay, go out there. This is your life. This is your life. Make the most out of it. Live with passion. Go in there. And that is what you can learn at Stillwater. That is what you can learn in so many other places around the world. Um, there are people like us everywhere. You just have not looked for them yet. And don't give up. If you Imagine you've got a baby. Okay, a little baby. And the baby learns to walk. And so it goes, bam, bam. And you say, oh, my God, it fell over. Okay, try that once more. Bang, bang. Oh my God, stop walking. You're clearly not a walker. Stop it, stop it, baby. No, we don't go there, that's it. So you've done how many rehab attempts? Two, okay. So that's it now? Oh, bullshit, bullshit. With a good rehab, you have got an 80, 90% reality of getting into recovery, okay? That is what is awaiting you. It will not be easy. And yes, there will be relapses, so what? That's just a matter of you then asking, okay, okay, I've done quite a bit of work. Okay, where did I fall over? So it's cool. So therefore, it doesn't matter how many re uh, rehabs you've tried in the past. You are not ready. And what about now? Who says you're not ready now? So guys, get in touch with Nick. Get in touch with Stillwater. And if that is something that... that um, that attracts you, if you gel with his kind of thinking, with his kind of thoughts. I, I, for me, rehab was the best thing that could have ever happened. And I have so often in my show said, uh, rehab should be something mandatory for every 16 year old. You turn 16, you go into rehab for a month. End of the story. Um, do exactly what I have done. The work, actually see healthy habits, see um, people talking about their emotions and actually feeling their emotions learning about what drives them so please maybe that should be something that we should be man make monetary for oregon uh, every 16 year old yeah. <laughs> now that would be an investment by the government into their youth before it turns to bloody custard so right. mm, man 
But you've got yeah. me there on my on my on my hobby horse there. It is we need to do something about our youth. And but there's only so much that one person can do. And but here you are. Uh, Nick, you're you're my my hero for going out there and for trying to make this world a little bit better. One interview at a time, one intervention at a time, one place at a time, um, one one new business model at a time. That's all we can do. Right. Oh man, Nick Matthews, um, a great dude who came onto my show. Guys, I want to say, give him a hand, give him an applause, but he can't hear it. So, <laughs> so I say, thank you very much. Thank you so much for being a guest on my show, Nick. No, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And you guys out there, live with passion. Make something out of this life. It's beautiful as it is. Bye. <laughs>